How are you? Good morning. My name is Jimmy. I'm one of the new pastors here at Christ Central. Uh, it's my privilege to share with you God's word this morning. Um, as Steve shared, I am a Cowboys fan, um, but I planned a parenting ske- uh, seminar on Super Bowl Sunday because I really don't care. <laughs> my Cowboys aren't playing, so who cares? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I know that all of us, as we come into the season um, of the new year, it's an exciting time. It's a time when we have anticipation and hopes. And there are a lot of things that are probably going through your heart and mind. One, I hope this year is better than last year. And two weeks in, I don't know how well you're doing on resolutions and these hopes. Um, Some of the families here, as they started the new year, lost a parent. And it wasn't such an easy beginning. In fact, it was a very painful one. And for a lot of people, the new year doesn't seem like any different from the other year. It just seems like last year only maybe with different pains and joys. But whatever your experience is in the new year, uh, my desire is just really to come and start this year with you and to really think again about our foundation of our faith and where we stand with God and, and how central is Christ in our life. I wanna say a word of thanks to you as a church to Pastor Harold, the staff, uh, the leaders. Uh, You've made this transition such a warm and welcoming time. Uh, My family and I are so thankful for uh, just the hospitality, the friendships, and just the new faces and names. And I apologize, because I shared it with many of you already. It's gonna take me a while to finally remember a lot of your names. But thank you so much for uh, your warm welcomes and hellos. I also really appreciate the theme of one more for the gospel. I feel like I resonate with that in the deepest part of my soul because that's something that I've been captured by ever since my beginning of ministry. Um, I served as a campus ministry pastor at uh, KCM, our current American campus mission. And for many of those years, as I served for over 15 years, I had the privilege to lead summer mission trips to places around the world. And before I turned 33, I had a chance to pretty much visit uh, pretty much most parts of the world. I had a chance to climb the beautiful mountains of the Philippines and worship with uh, Christians in a humble village. I had the privilege to dance and worship in Sao Paulo, Brazil with Brazilian Christians who just will dance for an hour singing praises to Jesus. I've had the privilege of visiting the, the exclusive Muslim city of Banda Aceh after the tsunamis and and being part of the first Christian witness for many of these Muslims who had never met a Christian, much less a Western Christian, who they thought were the most pagan, horrible people on the planet. And we're able to share that uh, the love of Christ is beautiful and, and they were so amazed that Christians would care about them and their need. I've had a privilege to visit Vladivostok, Russia and sit with a missionary in a hot sauna for about an hour. <laughs> and thinking, good God, when are we gonna leave? And it was one of the most awkward things we've ever done because we were both naked. (laughs) And you gotta imagine this, like every minute you're just sitting there like, I just feel so awkward. (laughs) I gotta get out of here. (laughs) Um, I had a chance to visit uh, India and God gripped my heart before I left the Ganges River. It's one of the most, it's the the Hindu Mecca uh, of, of their faith. And I was so frustrated and I felt so oppressed by all the evil spirits that just dwelled in that city. 
And I wanted to get out of there as quickly as I could and I stood over the Ganges River and God said, do not leave this place until you pray for its people. I remember being bedridden in Mexico. Out of a three week trip, the last week of my trip in Mexico in one of the years, I was literally on my back with a fever for the entire week while the team went out and did ministry and I just wrestled with God, God, why did you bring me here? In all those journeys, one of the things that continued to grow in my heart as I tried to share the gospel in various contexts was what does it mean to be a Christian? And what does it mean to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ? A few years ago, I picked up a book called Follow Me by uh, David Platt. Um, And in it, he tells a story of a Muslim woman by the name of Ayan. He writes, Ayan's personal identity, her familial honor, Relational standing and social status are all inextricably intertwined with Islam. Simply put, if Ayan ever leaves her faith, she will immediately lose her life. If Ayan's family ever finds out she is no longer Muslim, they will slit her throat without question or hesitation. Now imagine having a conversation with Ayan about Jesus. You start by telling her of how God loves her and how much he loves her that he sent his only son to die for her and her sin on the cross. And as you speak, you could sense that her heart is softening toward what you're saying and and toward this Jesus. And at the same time, you can feel her spirit trembling as she contemplates what it would cost for her to follow Christ. And with fear in her eyes and faith in her heart, she asks, how do I become a Christian? You know, for Christians here in America, to make a decision for Christ is not very costly. But as you travel around the world, you discover that to make a decision for Jesus Christ sometimes is very costly, and it can actually even cost you your life. I don't know how you would answer that question to Ian. How do I become a Christian? For many of us in the Western culture, our preoccupation with evangelism has been trying to almost herd as many people into the kingdom as, uh, as possible and, and do it quickly. And so we, we, you know, we have these mass gatherings and we, and, and we tell them the gospel, which is all great. And then we invite them to say a prayer, walk down an aisle and say a prayer. And then we're glad and we go home. But there are things that are going on in the heart, things that are continuing in the heart. And I wonder if some of us who are sitting right here today really wrestle with what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? I remember in ninth grade sitting in the back of my small church and remembering as a junior high boy being touched by the fact that Jesus loved me and he died for my sin. And as a teenage boy with hormones going through his body, I was so emotionally moved. But for the rest of those years, I still, throughout high school, I cussed, I did whatever I wanted to do, I struggled. I went to church just with my friends, just to see my friends. And it wasn't until my third year in junior, uh, a junior year in college that I went to a retreat where I really understood the gospel even deeper and I realized that what God wants me to do is not just to believe something, but to really believe it and then live my life in accordance with that belief. I don't know how you would answer her. And uh, in this book, um, the offer of not just asking her to make a confession and then lead her in a prayer, it's not as simple as just doing that for her. In fact, he writes, 
you might be able to tell her that God is calling you to die. Die to your life, to your family, to your friends, to your future. And in, to live in Jesus. The risk is high and every day, Ayan would have to die to all those things all over again so that she might live in Christ. In 1990, I took a trip to Southeast Asia. I visited Bangkok University. At Bangkok University, we met a, a handful of Christian students who were with Campus Crusade for Christ. They were happy, they were eating lunch, and I asked them, what's it like being Christian in Thailand? And they said, it's very difficult. We've been kicked out of our families. We're no longer welcomed at home. We live in an apartment together, and this is now our family. And I sat there as a first-year seminary student thinking, what? Are you serious? Like you had to literally leave your family and be kicked out of your family and your environment and your friends because you follow Christ? When I was in India, one of our girls on the team, we got a chance to teach at a school that the missionary started and she was leading a sixth grade class. And at the debriefing at the end of the night, she comes to me and, said, and she shares with the group, she says, I met a little boy and he's Christian and uh, his family's Hindu, and he said every day as they, as they eat their dinner, he bows his head and thanks, thanks Jesus for the meal, and every day he says he gets beat up. And he said he shares this story with, with a smile on his face. Yeah, I get beat up for Jesus. And the girl's like, what? One of the things that really is challenging for us today that I would love to share with you in this time is to really think about the joy, the beauty of the gospel, but also the cost and the idea of what it means to truly have God as the center and the Lord of our life. I wanna read for you uh, the beginning part of the story of the rich young ruler. So if you have your Bibles, let's look to Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. Mark chapter 10 Mark's gospel on this story, the, first, the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have the story of the rich and ruler. But this particular uh, story, the way Mark tells it, has a beautiful uh, description of some things that I really want to highlight for you. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, this is the reading of God's word. It says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This story begins in the context of Jesus and his disciples on their way to Jerusalem. And on this journey, this rich young ruler, the three gospels, as you, as you look at all three story versions, you will discover that he's rich, he's young, and that he was a ruler. And that as a ruler, he probably was a ruler of the synagogue. That's what the word was often used to describe. And so if you compile the description of this young man, he's, he's not only young, he has great wealth. 
And not only that, but he's actually a spiritual guy. And not only that, but he's a leader in his community of his faith. And then you add to that, rich people during that day never traveled alone. They usually had some servants and some friends, maybe some family members. And then the disciples were there, maybe a few other people following Jesus. And in this context, this man runs, which you don't do in the Middle East. You don't run, not people of dignity and not people of authority. He runs to Jesus and he kneels, a position of absolute humility and surrender. And he asks the million dollar question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you, if you didn't know anything else about Jesus and you just simply read that part, you would think Jesus would say, right here, believe in me. And what a simple answer that would be. That would have been a great answer and he would have said, okay, I believe in you, let's go. But Jesus doesn't do that. And in this encounter, we, we take a little glimpse into what this is, this thing that we call eternal life and following Jesus. And the first thing I want you to know is, as Jesus reveals the heart of this rich young man, is that it's impossible to keep the laws of God. In other words, it's impossible to find righteousness on our own. And so Jesus, as he says in response to this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to the question with a question. He says, why do you call me good? Don't you ever get frustrated reading this, the responses of Jesus? It's like, what kind of answer is that? <laughs> Why can't you just say what Paul said? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. That's a simple answer. It's a true answer. But here Jesus goes deeper. It's not just a response to believe, but he wants to go to the heart. That's what God is concerned about in your life and my life. And so he goes down the list of the second part of the Ten Commandments. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. And then he goes back to the fifth, do not honor your, uh, uh, I'm sorry, do not honor your mother and father. <laughs> sure, I'm getting recorded, man. Great. Um, and it's interesting that he skips the first four regarding your commitment to God. He goes right to his commitment to his neighbor. And in, and in uh, Luke's gospel, I'm sorry, Matthew's gospel, we find that Matthew helps and adds another phrase in there. He, after honor your father and mother, he adds the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's not part of the Ten Commandments. It's a summation, the second part. And here in Mark's gospel, what's interesting is that he doesn't say do not covet. He says do not defraud. I thought that was very interesting. I've been reading different commentaries and I've been researching and, and looking at the different ways that people have presented this text. And it's, it's, just, it's just troubling to me that all three of the synoptic gospels leave out do not covet. It doesn't say do not covet. And he also leaves out the first four commandments, which makes me be a little suspicious as to perhaps these are the very issues of his heart. That perhaps the way he's embraced wealth, the way he's embraced his riches was by coveting and by putting other things like money and wealth above his love for God. And he's covered it all up with an austere uh, presentation of himself that I'm actually a religious person. I'm a good person. I follow God and I, and I don't hurt my neighbor. When we go and understand the calling of scripture, the calling of scripture is not keep as many laws as you can, 
but, the, but to find eternal life through keeping the law means that you have to keep it perfectly. And there's no one who could do that. In fact, James 2.10 tells us that for whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails at one point becomes guilty of it all. So you can keep nine of them and then once you break one of them, oh, you're messed up again, you're a lawbreaker. And Jesus, goes, Jesus takes it even further. He says, it's not just good enough that you keep it outwardly, you gotta do it in your heart. And so it's not good enough that you didn't commit adultery, but if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. It's not good enough that you didn't murder, but if you hate your brother, that's murder in the heart. And so when, he dis when you discover that it's not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, it's not just nine out of 10, it's 10 out of 10 all the time, every single day of every moment, we begin to realize, I hope we realize, that none of us can keep God's law. None of us can be righteous enough to enter eternal life by our own works. And perhaps maybe the rhetorical question that Jesus gives, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Maybe it was the hint to the fact to this rich young ruler, you're not as good as you think. Because when he lists the commands, the rich young ruler responds, almost I wonder if he responds like with a smile on his face, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And can you, can you imagine like his servants and, and people, and they're like, oh, what a good guy. Can you imagine some of the ladies that might have been there? Oh, what a catch. He's young. He's rich. He loves God. He's so humble. He's such a good, upright man. And whatever we can't see with our eyes, Jesus sees in our heart. Remember the question was about eternal life. And going further, he tells, the Bible tells us in verse 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I'm going to come back to this part because I want you to understand there's something very beautiful that he does here when he looks at this rich young ruler. And he says to him, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. He says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When he says this, all of a sudden, this gleeful response of probably, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth turned into a disheartened sadness. And the man went from, ah, to, oh, and he walked away. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What Jesus was basically telling him to do was to take his incredible great wealth that he probably received and earned in both, in both ways, and then he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and I want to tell you, I'm not robbing you, I'm not telling you to become absolutely poor. In fact, I'm going to make you richer than you ever imagined, because if you do that, you will have treasures in heaven. Do you really believe this? And he says, then come follow me, let's go. But he couldn't. Now, when I first read this, I thought, wait, the gospel is not about work salvation. It's by grace through faith. It sounds like he's telling him to go do something. And so I was troubled with this particular response of Jesus because eternal life is not about our works. But what you find here is that what Jesus was doing was heart surgery. He knew what was the God of this man's heart. 
And that's why we begin to discover, not only is it impossible to, to keep the laws of God, it's impossible to keep our hearts free from idols. What he does is he, go, he does the heart surgery as he goes deeper. And he knows that there is this one thing that he holds so dearly that even though he says he wants eternal life, he's not willing to forego this small G God of his life, which is his wealth and his money, his riches. And the way that Jesus discloses this small G God was by telling him to go sell everything. If you really want eternal life, you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me, let's do this. And he said, I can't. And so we come back to the first four commandments. You shall have no other gods before you, before him. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That all the commandments that lead us to honor God and to put him first, not only in our week's work to rest in him, to keep the Sabbath, to remember the centrality of our God's place in our life, that he couldn't do that. Because what occupied his heart, and the human heart was created to only be occupied by one, our creator. But ever since the fall, we've wandered and we've, we've filled ourselves in that spot. It was no longer God who called the calls, it was I who called the calls. And at the heart of every idol, there's someone who's in control of that idol. You know who that person is? It's me. Every struggle with idolatry is a struggle of control because I don't want to surrender to God, because I don't want to wait for God, because whatever I need to identify myself, to find fulfillment, to find peace, to find rest, God takes too long. God's way is too difficult. I'm going to do it my way, and so I'm going to hold on to the things that give me peace and rest and identity and security right now, my way. And so we grab on to our children. We grab onto our work, our degrees, and if we fail a class, or if we get laid off from a job, or if something happens, God forbid, to our children, we're ready to become just totally a mess. Tim Keller, when he speaks about the idols of our hearts, he says, idols become idols when good things become ultimate things. When good things, that have been gifts and blessings are turned into ultimate things. They become the idols of our hearts. Well, this young man had an idol. And if you want to, if you want to look at it in one way, I think he approached Jesus never thinking about that he would have to let go of these things. And so what happens is, I think, perhaps he might have wanted to hold on to his riches and have eternal life too. Man, I want to have it all. I want to have the good life on earth and in the afterlife. But the true reality of living, life itself, whatever the good life is, defined by our American culture, the good life is not defined in scripture through what you possess. It's not the car we drive, it's not the house we live in, it's not the children we have, it's not the spouse we're married to. In fact, all those things are not what defines eternal life, because if it were, then Jesus had no life. He didn't have a spouse, he didn't have children, he didn't have great wealth. He didn't have degrees. He just had the Father in his kingdom. 
And for every person who defines their life and thinks that you have not lived until you've accomplished something or got married or had children or, or reached a certain level of success. I wanted you to be free. I want you to understand that God calls you to be free from idols. But I, if I can be honest with you, on this side of eternity, I don't know if we could ever be free of idols. There'll always be something that creeps up that I hold on to more than my God. It can be something as foolish as our cell phones. How many of you would collapse if your cell phone like died on you? (laughs) How many of you would collapse if something happened to your children? I know I would. You know, when I was a single man, I used to preach. Moses took his son and went to the top of the mountain of Moriah and and he was gonna sacrifice his son. I was like, yes, anything for Jesus. And then I had Joshua. And I remember holding Joshua in my arms when he was just a few weeks old and I thought, could you give up Joshua? And I was thinking, "Uh uh-uh, no, there's no way. If he asked me, I'd be like, sorry. (laughs) My daughter too, don't tell Liz. In this side of eternity, we hold on to control. But God says, if you want to hold on to these things, let them go. Hold on to my hand, because I hold on to everything else. The true life that you and I will receive in Christ is the beauty of being able to let go of whatever we define our life by and let it be defined by him who is the life. He's not only a life, he is the life, amen? And you can't know this, you can't experience this until you realize that whatever other little gods that are in your life, it will keep you from truly and freely experiencing the God who loved you and sent his only son. I've met Christians who confess the faith in Christ, they've been baptized, and they struggle with God's love, They struggle with God's presence. They struggle with their commitment to him. And every time we delve deeper, I recognize it because it's true in my life. There's idols of the heart. What Jesus did was he loved him. The scripture says Jesus agaped him. And the loving act of Jesus wasn't just to let him alone and say, you know what, keep your riches, let's just go. The loving act of Jesus was to tell him, you need to get rid of this so that you can truly experience the life that I have for you. I think one of the challenges that um, I went through, my wife and I went through, and if you know of our story and our testimony, both of our pregnancies were very difficult. And there were times during both pregnancies where we weren't sure where we were gonna be able to keep the children. And I remember being an absolute mess and praying out of absolute desperation, God, please, don't let us lose our son. Don't let us lose our daughter. And during those moments, I had two choices. Either I could get angry at God and just go find my own way or I could surrender it to him and say, God, I'm not gonna let this rob me. And during those moments, can I tell you, the most sweetest moments that my wife and I ever experienced with our Lord and his presence and his love was during those moments when we just let go. We gave it to him. 
And you're like, so what happened? <laughs> they're here. <laughs> Joshua and Liz, they're here with us. But every day they remind me that they should never be the most important thing in my life. And when I do, I begin to experience the fullness of what this life was meant to be. But on this side of eternity, we're never gonna be able to keep all the law. On this side of eternity, we'll never be able to really be free from idols. And that's why I love the fact that this story leads on and it continues. And it says in verse 23 and following, it says, Jesus looked around at his disciples and he said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And literally, it's like they were dumbfounded. It's like, what? And they were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that so interesting that in our culture, it almost seems so easy, but he says it's so difficult. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich, rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because he's holding on to everything. And they were exceedingly astonished. They were even more amazed and dumbfounded. And so they said to him, who then can be saved? Well, if, you know, if even these righteous and, and, and rich folks that we all look up to, if they can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus' answer is amazing. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. For you and I, we know what that possibility was. The gospel of God sending his own son, he did what is impossible for us, he made it possible. We couldn't go to God on our own, but he came and took care of that sin. All the things that we held on to for safety and security, when we put our trust in Jesus, we find that we are free, that we're free. And if you understand something, here's something that I know that I struggle with and I'm sure you struggle with too. When Jesus has let go of something, like your children or your job or your spouse or something that you value and, or your parents or whatever it is and you, you hold on to so much, he says, just let it go. You worry about it. You lose sleep over it. You can't, you can't even eat. You've lost your appetite. You're so worried if you're gonna get accepted to that graduate school program. You're worried if she's gonna say yes or if he will even ask you to marry him and you're worried about all these things and you're losing sleep but if you let go of it, you begin to realize the true joy of what he calls us to do, which is to trust in him. And here the beauty of letting go of our idols, letting go of our self-righteousness, which never is fulfilling enough, we find that as we embrace and trust in Christ, who is the person who takes the impossible and makes it possible, that we understand that the joy of this gospel the joy of this gospel is to remember again, over and over again, that he has loved you, he sees you, he understands what you need to be free if you would just trust in him and follow him. The call to follow is not just simply to trust in him and then just live your life, but to follow him. You know, when he says this, Peter says to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands 
with persecution in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, this calling to follow Christ, it doesn't come without its cost. As I was uh, making a decision to go to seminary, one of my uncles, um, I used to hang out with him. He's the one who actually applied for our, our, our uh, immigration status to come to the United States, and uh, he welcomed us. We lived in his home for the first few years when we came from Korea. And um, when he heard that I was graduating school and I was gonna go to seminary, he called me a bastard. He said, how dare you take what your parents have invested in you and waste it away. He said, you're an Asian. Why are you following a Palestinian? He said, you should be, if you want a religion, go follow Buddhism, at least that's Asian. And you know, like with all my anger and I was like, I just wanted to just, ugh. And you know what's amazing? That even in those moments, I remember praying for my uncle and during the last few years before he died with cancer, he came to trust in Christ. And I remember praying for him and I remember thinking about all those things that, that really was weighty. And I wanna share with you that Jesus calls us to follow him. And CCSC, you know, before we can really make this heart a passion in the church, for us for one more, to be able to go out there and, and be willing to follow Christ, even in the places or, you know, when you share about Jesus Christ or invite them to church, you never know what response you're gonna get. And you, you and I might be afraid. What if they don't wanna be my friend anymore? What if they don't wanna hang out with me at work anymore? It's possible. What if your family member thinks you're insane or you're, they're insulted that you would even say that whatever you believe, change it. That's all possible. But I also want you to understand some of the best evangelists I've ever met about restaurants, about movies, about shopping areas. They're so excited. Oh my God, there's this incredible restaurant. You have to go eat it. You're just like, amen, let's go. You know what that is? It's a love. It's a love that translates into passion and everyone knows how to evangelize. Because everyone has taken someone, someone somewhere. Oh, you got to go with me to this place. Oh, you got to go to this. Oh, there's this store, whatever. You've evangelized. You've shared the good news of a great deal. And my question to you is, why is it so hard with Jesus? Did you ever wonder that? Maybe because there's something that we don't want to lose to gain something that we know will never be taken away. The most richest people I've ever met on this earth are not people who own million dollar houses or drive $100,000 cars. The most richest people I've ever met were people who are living in the front lines of missions and at home who have given themselves over and have been freed. They're free. You're free to love God instead of in bondage, you're free to follow. And every day we need to recognize our brokenness and inability to keep God's laws perfectly. Every day we need to recognize that we battle against our own idols and we're so weak. And every day we need to confess that we crave and lust and indulge in our own pleasures and we often forget God. And every day in thought and in deed, 
we break his commandments. And when you reach that place of humility, I hope that you remember that the only thing that you need to anchor yourself to is not more improvement, not more live a better life, not just try to get better, not just do a few things, but really to understand first, you need to anchor yourself to Jesus Christ and the cross of what he's done. Because through that, God has made what is so impossible, possible. And now, as Christians, we can truly be free And I hope that you will gain an excitement. Because if you really want to share a gospel with one more, one more neighbor, one more friend, one more family member, you need to make sure that that one thing, that Jesus is that one first. I hope that at CCSC, that at Christ Central, that our love for that one first comes before that one more and makes that one more a beautiful reality and a vision for us here. Let's pray.